Chapter 18 of Electricity and Magnetism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chuck Hahn. Electricity and Magnetism by Alicia Gray. Chapter 18 Short Line Telegraphs. Early in the history of the telegraph, Short lines began to be used for private purposes, and as the Morse code was familiar only to those who had studied it and were expert operators on commercial lines, some system had to be devised that anyone with an ordinary English education could use, as the expense of employing two Morse operators would be too great for all ordinary business enterprises. These short lines are called private lines, and the instruments used upon them were called private line telegraph instruments. Of course, they are now nearly all superseded by the telephone, but they are a part of history. One of the earliest forms of short-line instruments was called the dial telegraph. One of the first inventors, if not the first, of this form of instrument was Professor Wheatstone of England, who perfected a dial telegraph instrument about the year 1839. The receiving end of this instrument consisted of a lettered dial face, under which was clockwork mechanism and an escape wheel controlled by an electromagnet. Each time the circuit was opened or closed, the wheel would move forward one step, and each step represented one of the letters of the alphabet, so that the wheel, like the type wheel of a printing telegraph, had 14 teeth, each tooth representing two steps. As the reciprocating movement of the escapement had a pallet or check piece on each side of the wheel, its movement was arrested 28 times in each revolution. These 28 steps corresponded to the 26 letters of the alphabet, a dot and a space. On the shaft of the escape wheel is fastened a hand or pointer, which revolves over a dial face, having the 26 letters of the alphabet, also a dot and a space. The pointer was so adjusted that when the escape wheel was arrested by one of the pallets, it would stop over a letter, showing thus, letter by letter, the message which the sender was spelling out. The transmitter consisted of a crank with a knob and a pointer on it, which was mounted over a dial that was lettered in the same way as the face of the receiving instrument. A revolution of this crank would break and close the circuit 28 times. That is to say, there were 14 breaks and 14 closes of the circuit. If now the transmitting pointer and the receiving pointer are unified so that they both start from the same point on the dial, and the transmitting crank is rotated from left to right, the receiving pointer will follow it up to the limit of its speed. In transmitting a message, the sender would turn his crank or pointer to the first letter of the word he wished to transmit, making a short pause, and then move on to the next letter, and so on, to the end of the message, making a short pause on each letter. The end of a word was indicated by turning the pointer to the space mark on the dial. The receiving operator would read by the pauses of the needle on the various letters. This was a system of reading by sight. There have been many forms of this dial telegraph worked out by different inventors at different times, and quite a number of them were used in the old days. It was a slow process of telegraphing, but it was suited to the age in which it flourished. One of the difficulties of a dial telegraph consisted in the readiness with which the transmitter and receiver 
would get out of unison with each other. And when this happened, of course, a message is unintelligible, and you have to stop and unify again. About 1869, the writer invented a dial telegraph to obviate this difficulty. In this system, a transmitter and receiver were combined in one instrument, and instead of a crank, there were buttons arranged around the dial in a circle, one opposite each letter. When not in operation, the pointers of both instruments at both stations stood at zero. In the act of transmitting, the operator would depress the button opposite the letter he wished to indicate, when immediately the pointers of both instruments would start up and move automatically, step by step, until the pointer came in contact with the stem of the depressed button, when it would be arrested, and, at the same time, cut out the automatic transmitting mechanism and cause both needles to remain stationary during the time the button was depressed. Upon releasing the button, the pointers both fall back to zero at one leap. The first private line equipped with this instrument was for Rockefeller, Andrews, and Flagler, which was the firm name of the parties who afterward organized the Standard Oil Company. This line was built between their office on the public square in Cleveland and their works over on the Cuyahoga Flats. It seemed, however, to be the fate of the writer to make new inventions that would supersede the old ones before they were fairly brought into use. Very soon after the dial telegraph began to be used, printing telegraph instruments for private line purposes superseded them. About 1867, a printing instrument was devised for stock reporting, which in one of its forms is still in use. Soon after the invention of this form of printer, a company was organized to operate not only these stock reporting lines, but short lines for all sorts of private purposes. Following the invention of the stock reporting instrument, there were several adaptations made of the printing telegraph for private line purposes. Among others, the writer invented one known as Gray's Automatic Printer, a cut and a description of which may be found on page 684 in Electricity and Electric Telegraph by George B. Prescott published in 1877. This instrument was adopted by the Gold and Stock Telegraph Company as their standard private line printer. It was first introduced in the year 1871, and at the time the telephone began to be used, there were large numbers of these printers in operation in all of the leading cities and towns in the United States. While this has been superseded to a large extent by the telephone, there are still a few isolated cases where it is used. Short lines have multiplied for all sorts of purposes until today the money invested in them largely exceeds the amount invested in the regular commercial telegraphic enterprises. The invention of the telephone created such a demand for short line service that some scheme had to be devised not only to make room for the necessary wires but to also cheapen the instruments as to bring them within reach of the ability of the ordinary man of business. This problem has been solved, but not without many difficulties, by the inauguration of what is known as the central station. By this system, one party simply controls a single wire from his office or residence to the central station. Here, he can have his line connected with any other wire running into this same station by calling the central operator and asking for the required number. It is useless to tell the public that very often this number is busy but here is the great drawback of the central station system. This is especially true in large cities where there are a great number of lines. 
The switchboards in large cities are necessarily very complicated affairs, and it requires a number of operators to answer the many calls that are constantly coming in. Each central station operator presides over a certain section of the board, and as this section has to be related in a certain way to every other section, it is easy to see wherein arises the complication. In large cities, the central stations themselves have to be divided and located in different districts, being connected by a system of trunk lines. End of chapter 18. Recording by Chuck Hahn. San Francisco, February 2011.